We're going to be in the Word today. Uh, just a quick note, uh, elders wanted me to mention they, they liked the tie so much. Uh, this is now, I'm told, going to be your dress code for next week. So, uh, so that, that, that tells me there'll be plenty of parking next week. So don't worry about getting here early. Most of us are probably not old enough to remember uh, Teddy Roosevelt being our president. Well, I guess maybe Dave. Uh, Did you vote for him? I don't remember. And here I don't even know the man very well, and I'm already picking on you. That's, that's not very cool, is it? Well, during his presidency, he was young enough, he was the second youngest president after JFK, to have a daughter, to have a child in the White House while he was there. And his daughter, Alice, was famous in Washington. She was kind of scandalous for her ill behavior. And the sophisticated Washington society was not pleased to see her have the run of the White House the way she did in her day. One day when a visitor was in the Oval Office with President uh, Roosevelt and they were trying to conduct business in this meeting and Alice would wander in and out and disrupt the meeting left and right. And at one point, this person was so upset over this that they had the nerve to actually turn to the president and say, you know, aren't you going to do something about your daughter while we're here discussing these important matters? And President Roosevelt responded, I can be president of the United States or I can control Alice. I can't possibly do both. (laughs) And what he said really reminds us of a truth that we all share in one way or another, and that is that we have choices in life. We have to make priorities with our time and with our attention. There's only so much we can do. Today I want to teach you a lesson that God provides us out of his word on that very point. And today we're going to be in Haggai. Now, if you don't know where that book is, it's an Old Testament minor prophet. Uh, You'll find him about three books from Matthew to the left. Just go to Matthew, turn left, and then page a bit. You'll find them three books in from there. We're going to share a story in, in Haggai today about a prophet sent to the nation of Israel to teach them on this same lesson. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not yet come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Now, we're pausing there because there's some background. And without the background, I think you'll miss some of what God has for us in the text this morning. Haggai was one of the men in the nation of Israel living in Jerusalem when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon rolled into town in about 586 B.C. and took that nation captive. After 70 years in captivity, the Jews found themselves now under the authority of a new empire, the Medo-Persians, who had come in and conquered the Babylonians while the Jews were in captivity. Cyrus, who was king of Persia at the time, at the end of that 70-year period, granted the Jews the opportunity, if they wanted, to go back into their land. And at the time he gave them that opportunity, only a remnant chose to return. Roughly about three waves of Jews went back The first wave being about 50,000 or so. Among that first group of refugees, if you will, who chose to leave Medo-Persia and go back into Jerusalem was this man, Haggai. His name, it means festive one, which is really ironic when you think about it. He's a prophet, not generally considered to be very festive if you were a Jew. Um, We don't know anything else about him. We don't know anything else about his family. We do know that he's one of the uh, final three prophets that the nation of Israel heard from. There's a reason why you see the Old Testament prophets ending with Haggai and then Zechariah and then Malachi, because actually that's the chronological order 
in which those three men gave their testimonies to the nation of Israel. They comprised the three prophets that spoke to the post-exilic nation, meaning the nation that came out of exile. And of those three, Haggai was the first to begin prophesying. He was actually a contemporary with Zechariah. They knew each other. About a hundred years later, Malachi came along. He's the most accurate prophet in terms of dating his ministry. This is just a little trivia for you. You can take this back with you and impress your friends. Based on what he gave us there in that first verse, we can literally date the very day that he, had, he received his revelation and began speaking to the nation of Israel. It was August 29th, 520 B.C. When God spoke to him on that day, he begins, God begins by quoting what he's hearing from the nation of Israel. So God speaks to Haggai and he says, tell the nation this. I hear you saying the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, God's referring here, as you may know, to the rebuilding of the temple of God's house in the form of the temple. Remember, when Nebuchadnezzar came into town, which roughly be about 100 years earlier from this point, he laid waste to that city. He destroyed not only the people's homes, he took down the city wall, which is why we have the book of Nehemiah. And he also took down the temple, reduced it to rubble. So there was absolutely nothing left in that city. It was utterly destroyed as a result of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, riding into town. If we study a little history about how God brought the Jews back into the land at this point in history, away from Medo-Persia, you're going to learn a little uh, reason or the specific reason for why God took the trouble to let them come home. You find that in Ezra. Now, if you want to page back to your left a few more books, you can. I'm just going to read you five verses out of Ezra. But I want you to listen to some of the early verses in Ezra, which give us the reason why God freed the nation from their captivity. Ezra chapter one, verse two. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all the people, may his God be with him. Let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the man of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the father's households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. So the king of Persia, quite remarkably, gives acknowledgement to God in Jerusalem as the holy God of Israel and says that God has done two things. He's giving me that the entire world is my kingdom. And secondly, he's told me that I am to make sure that his house gets rebuilt. So you hear him acknowledging that to be the purpose. And then interestingly, in verse five, which I read, you hear the nation echoing it. You hear the nation saying, basically, as they assemble in preparation to make the trip, whoever amongst us wants to go down and build the temple needs to come together and travel down. And they received free will offerings, we're told. They received goods. They received the materials they needed to make that trip. So it doesn't take long for us to understand that the reason they were freed was to rebuild that temple. But it also doesn't take long for the nation to lose focus and forget that purpose. They arrive, they begin the building process, but almost immediately they, they confront opposition from some of the Gentile nations that were in that area. And as a result of the opposition to the rebuilding of the temple, they stop. And for 15 years, they do nothing. The temple lies uh, not completed, uh, incomplete in the state they left it at the point where they stopped. 
You know, 15 years is a long time. Maybe not in biblical terms, but you know, in the life of any given individual, 15 years is a fair amount of time. What were they doing for 15 years? What, what stopped, you know, the, we understand that opposition stopped the construction of the temple, but why didn't they start again? Are we to believe that opposition stayed hot and heavy for 15 years? No, if you know the story of Ezra, you know that's not true. They reached the point of opposition, they stopped, but surely they must have remembered God's instruction. Surely they must have remembered the whole reason they went down there in the first place was to rebuild that temple. What were they doing for 15 years? Well, the text sadly gives us a picture of what they were doing. When God quotes them in verse 2 of chapter 1 of Haggai, He says, You're, you are saying the time is not right. But really in the Hebrew, if you want to break that down, you could break it down a little differently. They were essentially procrastinating. They were making excuses for not obeying because another way of saying that phrase in the Hebrew is to say, I don't have time to do it. That's another way you could translate it. It's, another, it's basically a matter of priorities. So what was it that was keeping the nation of Israel so busy that they didn't have time to come back and attempt to, re- to build the temple as they've been ordered to do? Well, read two more verses into Haggai and you get your answer. Haggai chapter 1, verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? In his second statement then to the nation of Israel through Haggai, I love this about Scripture. God has this biting sense of wit. He shows it particularly through his son as his son confronts Pharisees. If you know the stories of the, uh, of the Gospels, there's so often the times when Jesus will nail these guys for their hypocrisy. And he does it in this oblique way, coming at it from a direction you didn't expect with a little humor actually mixed in. It's this biting humor that cuts through the nonsense and hits the heart where the issue lies. This is what he said to him. He said, oh, I hear you say that it's not time to build my house. Okay, so I guess it's time for you to build your house, though. That's what time it is, huh? It's not my time. It's your time. That's what I'm hearing. Ouch. You know, that hurts. Because after all, if time is the problem here, if that's really what this comes down to, you don't have enough time. God turns that excuse back on them and says, Well, then how is it you have time to do those things you want to do? You know, as a parent, you know exactly this conversation. Right? Son, you know, you tell me you don't have time to clean your room, but you have time to get to the next level in your video game, don't you? Daughter, you don't have time to complete your chores, but you have time to chat with your friends. Honey, you don't have time to mow the lawn, but you have time to watch football. This one wasn't... Lesson to me, don't let your wife proofread your notes. Is time really the problem? Obviously not. The problem is that it's a priority issue. You know, it sure is convenient. You know, the situation actually here is a little worse than I've made it sound. Because when you look at the text, when he says, is it time for you to be building your paneled houses? The word there for paneling or paneled in the Hebrew is also synonymous with ceiling. What you're looking at here is this wall and ceiling treatment going on in their homes where they're paneling their homes with a fine layer of wood, which was very unusual. The only other mention of paneling in the entire Old Testament comes in two places, once in reference to the temple and its construction, and then secondly to the palace of King Jehoiakim, who went about building himself a palace that rivaled the temple. 
So we're not talking, and in fact, if you want to make a comparison, Palestinian homes in that day, the typical construction was cinder block of some kind or stone with a thin layer of plaster on the inside just to make it somewhat livable and keep the wind out. And then on the roof, you'd have timbers or maybe more wood blocks with uh, threshing or some plaster. We're not talking about elaborate kinds of building techniques. It was sturdy. But when you think about it, on the inside of that home, they would have looked up to see bare rafters or stone. They would not have looked up to see wood paneling, to be sure. So this is not just them constructing their homes. This goes well beyond that. When God says they're building their homes with paneling, he's saying they are engaged in the most lavish kind of construction you can imagine. Some, they're building homes with interior treatments so extravagant that it would rival God's house or a king's palace in terms of treatment. And if that wasn't enough, where did the wood come from? Where did all this fine paneled wood come from? Well, I want you to consider something you also hear from Ezra in his description of how they began the construction on the temple. It's in Ezra chapter 3, verse 6. And this is what we're told. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa, according to the permission they had from Cyrus, the king of Persia. So when the temple construction had first begun, even before they laid the foundation, they took an offering from what they had received as they left Persia, they used those funds to pay men to transfer expensive Lebanon cedar up to the Temple Mount so that they'd be able to use it for the construction of the temple. But the, the foundation was laid, we're told later in, a, in Ezra. They reached the point where they received opposition and they stopped. So we know from Ezra the wood arrived before the, the foundation was laid. We know from Ezra as well the foundation was laid and then everything stopped. So picture in your mind the construction scene. You've got the foundation and, oh, look at all that wood just sitting there going to waste. Well, if they're not going to use it, maybe it would look good in our house, honey. That's what happened. So now we know they not only took the time that God had appointed for them to build his own house. They not only used it to not just build a home, but now lavishly build a home. They stole the things set aside for the temple and used it in their construction of their homes. Let me be clear. God was not unhappy with the nation of Israel because they took time to build a home. God is not cruel and uncaring. He appreciates the fact that they needed shelter. And he did not hold it against them that they stopped building for, for the moment anyway and used time to build their own homes. They were refugees. They had come back into a land that had nothing. God did not object to that. If anything, he showed extreme patience for 15 years while they did that. Some have taught this chapter, or at least this book, as I've heard it taught, as a, as a means of prompting giving within a body of Christ for the sake of a building campaign. On the basis that the lesson out of Haggai is all about, we need to make sure that we can get God's house built. And of course, what is a house in the, in the eyes of too many people today? It's the building. When in reality, that's not the house of the Lord today. But when you look at the text and when you look at what God objected to, it had little to do with the very fact that they were building their own homes. It had everything to do with their priorities and with their dishonesty and with their selfishness and really with the entire way they approached that circumstance, not merely with the fact that they were willing to build their home. You see, the truth is they had long ago finished building their homes. I mean, their homes 
were certainly capable of sheltering them. They'd been living in them for 15 years. What were they really doing? The homes, though they were perfectly adequate for the task, they had moved beyond that now. They needed more than shelter. What they needed was a personal palace. They didn't just want somewhere to live. They wanted something to show off. They weren't just interested in having a home. They were interested in having a home that rivaled God's home. This became a lot more than just shelter. Today's world, we might call it something like materialism or keeping up with the Joneses. This was a heart that said, I need more than I have, and there's no end in sight. And oh, by the way, God, you'll have to wait a little longer. I don't have time for you, at least in this area of their life. Not surprisingly, there are consequences for this kind of self-serving lifestyle. Look what Haggai says next in verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put in a purse with holes. So after pointing out their sinfulness, and you have to believe that if these people were even honest for a moment, they heard his words, took them to heart, and recognized what he was talking about. Now he says, consider your ways. Now, what that phrase literally means in the, in the Hebrew is mind your path, but it comes with a past tense emphasis in the Hebrew. So it's really about think back on the path you've been taking for 15 years. That's really what he's saying in that short phrase. Consider your ways. So he's saying, take a moment, think back on the last 15 years of your life and on the decisions you've made. And when you think back on those 15 years, what do you find? What does those 15, what do those 15 years look like? Well, he begins to give them the list. He begins to answer that question for them. And look what he tells them. He says in verse 6, Well, you've sown much. Of course, that means planting, preparing a field so that you can grow something in it and harvest, right? He says, you've sown much, but you haven't harvested much. Huh, isn't that funny? You, You drink the wine of your fields, he says, but there isn't enough to even get drunk. Now, that's just a very blunt way of saying that you're not getting very much production out of the vines of your field. Huh, isn't that funny? You have clothing, but you're never warm enough. Isn't that odd? You earn wages, but then he says, you put them into money pockets or purses with holes. That's like saying money burns a hole in your pocket. It's the same kind of concept. It's really a way of talking about inflation. It's really saying it seems like there's never enough. Is there? It's a picture of inflation. Money's just disappearing before your eyes. What's most fascinating about this little piece I've just read is that opening statement again. Consider your ways. Consider the path you've been on, because what it suggests to me is they had become oblivious to the situation they were in every year. They were working harder and harder and harder and never achieving what they wanted. And they had never stopped to ask what God proposes as the obvious question. Why? Catch a clue. Look at your circumstances. Why is everything so hard and so unfruitful? You know, it's been said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting a different result. Well, if that's true, then maybe we're looking at a kind of insanity here. The Jews of Haggai's day were working overtime, day in and day out. We're told here that they were planting even bigger fields. The the concept here is I planted this much this year, didn't get enough. 
So I'll plant more next year. Still didn't get enough. More vines, still not enough wine. More clothes, still not warm enough. You know, if they keep doing the same things over and over again, year after year, but that work that they did never achieved the outcome they were seeking, then it seems to me like they've reached the definition of insanity. It's not working. Life was not going to satisfy them the way they had intended. And through it all, they were telling God, we don't have time to do what you've asked us to do on the temple. You know, if this is insanity, if, if you want to go with my definition for the moment, and if you look at what they're doing and you see it as sort of a corporate insanity within the nation of Israel, then I wonder what God would say about our culture today. Can you identify just a little bit with the Jews of Haggai's day? Have you experienced this insanity of, of trying the same things year after year after year and working in the same ways year after year after year and it never really seems to get you where you want to go? Or, or when it does come, it never lasts? You know, it's, it's always just one paycheck away, whatever it is you're striving for, one promotion away. It's just when the, when the kids get out of school, when the, this happens and the, that happens, and it, you, you feel a little bit of what maybe they were feeling in the moment. Have you ever stopped to ask the question, consider your ways? You know, it wasn't always this way for the nation of Israel that returned. They didn't always have this experience. If you were to go into Ezra again, chapter 3, verse 10, and look at how it started when they first returned to the land. Look what they found. Chapter 3, verse 10. Now, when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, they wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with such a loud shout that the sound was heard far away. Wouldn't you have loved to be there for that? Joy so inexpressible that it's heard as a shout a, way, a long way away. And why? I mean, if you had stepped into the moment, if you had heard the shout and run up to see what was going on, you know what you would have found? A bunch of guys dressed funny, standing around a big slab. The foundation of the temple. Wow, that's exciting. Ooh. Little guys are a little off here. What's all, what's all the fuss about? It had nothing to do with the building. You know that, right? It had everything to do with an obedient walk with the Lord. With the joy, the inexpressible, unexplainable joy that comes from doing what God has commanded we do. From living with Him and walking with Him and obeying Him. It doesn't come because of the personal, physical achievement. It become, it's because of the heart of obedience. That's joy. That is the joy of the Lord. That's what we were told they experienced at first. And for a time, the nation enjoyed that satisfaction. I think we have a similar opportunity, particularly with new believers. Whether they're young, whether they're old, wherever they are, as they come into faith, you know, when Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, releases us from the captivity we have in a sinful nature, and we are brought into that walk of faith with the Lord, we are going to receive a joy that comes not from what we achieve, 
but from the relationship that's established and from our obedience in that relationship. You know, as unbelievers, when we were yet slaves to sin, we could not have hoped to serve God, much less please Him in that state. When we were trapped in that life of sinfulness, we knew nothing but selfishness. That's the defining nature of the unregenerated man. It's all about me. I'm my own God. I'm my own person. And I'll do whatever I darn well please. Now, some of us carry that nature into our new self, at least for a time. But that's not what we were saved to be. When we were released from our sinful nature by faith and made alive in Christ, called to new life through the Spirit, we weren't released from that old nature so that we might embark on a life of selfish pursuits. Another way to say it is, we weren't saved for our own sake. First Peter puts it this way in his letter, chapter 2, verse 9. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I think we, in some cases, let down that new believer. Because what we tend to take is that first blush of excitement that you know what I'm talking about when you've seen the new believer come to faith and just receive the Lord in a way that they joyfully know there's been a change. And they come into the church expecting great things from that experience, from that early first blush. And in many ways, it's like the Jew released from their captivity who experienced that joy of seeing the foundation laid and knowing that something great had started. And then while they're rejoicing over that new temple, we're rejoicing over what temple? Well, the new temple of our body. We present our bodies, we're told, as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God because that is our spiritual service of worship. In the Jews' day, they built the physical temple of the mount. In our day, the body of Christ is the temple of God. Ephesians, Paul puts it this way in chapter 2, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on a foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into the holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Paul makes the direct comparison there. The body of Christ, this church you're now part of, this group here and the larger church as it, as it grows across the, the globe, is the same thing spiritually as the temple was in the day of the Old Testament. And just as they were asked to lay a foundation and keep going, we have become part of the body of Christ whose foundation was laid by the apostles, Jesus being the cornerstone. But guess what? There's a pile of wood sitting next to that foundation. What are you using it to build? Your home or God's building? So often we fail those early Christians because that excitement is squandered. They come into the church expecting great things. We receive them certainly. But then the church, I think, if we're not careful, we turn their experience into little more than a spectator sport. You know, they come once a week, they hear something good, and then they go home. And the other six days of the week, what are they building? What they do is they trade in, I think, this opportunity to build God's temple for really just working to build the American dream. Which, by the way, is what they were doing before they were believers. And as their enthusiasm for what they've been called to do is robbed and turns to dissipation, 
And their joy then goes with it, and so often the, is so often the case. God is not going to allow His children to find that joy elsewhere. He's not going to allow us to substitute for what He has called us to do. He's not going to give us joy in building the American dream. Consider what God tells the nation through Haggai in the next series of verses in that chapter. One verse, chapter 1, verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways again. Go up to the mountains... Bring wood and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, said the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. And when you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. So God, speaking to Haggai, to the nation, he says, get back on track. He says, go up to the mountains, go get the wood to replace what you stole from me, and go back to building the temple. But then he says something I think is fascinating. In the next two verses, he repeats the phrase he taught earlier, which is, you keep trying hard, nothing ever comes from it. But then look what he says at the end of the verses I just read. The most surprising thing of all, and I would argue the thing none of us have ever considered in our own walk. God says, He withheld the rain. He withheld the produce. He dried up the mountains and the grain fields and the new wine and the oil and the cattle. He was the one ensuring that all that hard work that the nation was putting into their own lifestyle while his house lay desolate would come to nothing. It's not chance. It's not bad luck. It's not like they just happened to hit it at the wrong time. What he's saying in plain language is, I wasn't going to let you succeed. I don't care how hard you tried. And the misery you felt for having failed in those pursuits was by design. He obviously used Haggai to gain their attention, but God had been working through that entire 15-year period to make sure that when the message finally did come from Haggai, that they would hear it and they would listen. Because they would think back on 15 years of lost effort, wasted time, dreams unfulfilled, joy never being found, and they would finally get the point. You're right. It was miserable, and it's going to be that way because I don't want you to find joy outside of obedience and service to me. Their frustration at never getting ahead was exactly the frustration God wanted them to experience. And all that time, what were they doing? More, more, more. Bigger fields, more vines, whatever it took. We know we can get satisfaction if we just keep pushing harder and harder. And he was determined to show them that wasn't going to work. Does that sound familiar? You know, in the Gospels, Jesus tells a parable. You can find it in Luke chapter 8 as an example. And he describes the various outcomes that will inevitably result from the preaching of the gospel. He says, whenever the gospel is preached, there are four kinds of outcomes you're going to see occur within the hearing of the gospel. Among the listeners, here's what you're going to find. He begins with a picture using seeds and soil. You know, the the parable of the sower and the seed is the way it's sometimes called. He begins first with a condition of the hardened unbeliever. This is the one whose heart is like hard-packed soil. The, the seed, the Word of God, never penetrates it. That person never receives it, even in a pretend sort of way. There's a clear repudiation of the Gospel from day one. Then there's a second condition where the unbeliever appears to have the 
first sprouts of life, that the unbeliever makes a profession of some kind that gives you the impression they are a believer, but then time and testing shows them to be the fraud that they are and they don't last. The life they had was just a bloom. It wasn't true, lasting, eternal life. Then you see a fourth condition, if you jump to the end, where you find that responsive Christian who flourishes in the new life. They're pictured by a plant who grows to maturity and produces seed, has fruit for the master, in other words. But the one condition in that parable that stands out most clearly is that third response. In the third response, you have that one person who, as a believer, is given new life and it begins to grow. But before long, the growth pauses. You know, the maturity never comes. The plant never reaches the point where it can produce any fruit. Now, the operant question, the important question of that parable is why? We understand condition one. We can see condition two. I mean, you've met people, I'm sure, who, though they may have claimed Christian belief, when you actually knew them and you saw their life and you got to understand what they truly held to be true, you realized it was a false confession. They didn't understand what they said. And we would hopefully have at least a few men and women in our lives who mirror that last condition, the fruitful, mature Christian who's grown up in their faith. But it's that third condition that makes us all just a little nervous. And to be honest, it's the third condition that's the point of the parable. It's the reason the parable is told. In that third person, that third condition, you find someone who's, who is distracted, we're told, by the cares and the pleasures and the riches and the worries of the life they lead, comparable to thorns and thistles. In the case of the plant, a thorn or a thistle is something that grows in the soil next to the plant and robs it of all its energy. It takes away the sunlight. It takes away the nutrients and the water. It sucks everything out of that plant so that the plant only has enough energy left to keep itself alive. But hardly enough to grow to maturity. Hardly enough to produce fruit to serve its master. Because any energy it had is going right into those cares and pleasures and worries that are surrounding it. The lesson of that parable is essentially the same as this account in Haggai. When we spend our lives serving ourselves, we produce a wasted crop in the case of the parable of the sower and the seed. And serving ourselves, if you look at Haggai, means specifically giving our energies to the pursuit of this world and our own selfish desires rather than to God's call in our life. Robbing from God, if you will, from what he is reserved for his use in his temple. And instead, like the Jews in the time of Haggai, using the wood for their own homes, we rob him when we use our energy, which in our day comes down to what? Time and money and effort. When we rob that from God for our own personal pursuit, rather than investing it back into God's temple, which today is what? The body of Christ. And the ministry, the mission of the body itself, of the church, the reason the church exists. That is the mission that God has called us to be a part of. And for both the Jew then and I think the church today, we make excuses. And what's ironic to me is we make exactly the same excuse. It's not the right time. I don't have time. Maybe tomorrow. God may grant us the blessings of a home and big bank accounts and you know, successful businesses and, and many of the other cares and riches that define modern life. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we weren't saved to build houses. And we weren't saved to build up our bank account. And we weren't saved so that our businesses would grow. And we certainly weren't saved for the sake of our own reputations. We were saved to worship and glorify him and to serve the body in the church and to witness of his son in the world. That's why you were saved. That's why I was saved. 
And it will be, and I can say this, I believe, on the authority of Scripture, it will be our work in building in those areas that will bring us lasting joy and satisfaction. It will not be building up the things of this world. And don't take my word for it. Look what Peter says one last time in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. And they may malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. So Peter's mention here in chapter uh, four of his first letter is, that you and I have had plenty of time before we were saved to pursue all those things that mark the Gentiles, as he calls it. Another way to put it for us today would be the unbelieving world. You've had plenty of time. We've all had plenty of time. We've had our wild oats sown, so to speak. Put that behind you. What comes next, he says, is a life lived according to the will of God. The will of God being, as he's laid on your heart, the ministry that you play within the body of Christ. Whatever you're gifting, whatever you're calling. But it's a matter of priorities. It's a matter of time. You know, I can't say what God's will is for you, much less for this church. But I can say this on the authority of Scripture. God has saved us to spend an eternity with Him. And the only thing preventing us from entering into that eternity in His presence right now is this corrupt container we're still shackled to. Now, on the day you were saved, he could have put this to death and taken you home. So it begs a question. What's he waiting for? The only answer to that question is he still has some opportunity for you to serve him now in the body you still have. Wouldn't it be a shame if on the day we stand before our Lord and he asks us to consider our ways, we won't be able to look back over the time we had given in this body on this earth and find things we did for him, but rather all we would find are the things we chased after in this world. Wouldn't that be a shame? It doesn't affect our salvation. It doesn't take us out of the body of Christ. We know that. But you're saved. Get over it. What comes next? Ronald Reagan was a man who, who I think appreciated priorities. James Baker tells a story about when they were preparing for a World Economic Summit in Camp David. And James Baker, as the Secretary of State, had gone to a lot of effort to prepare a briefing book for Reagan before he walked uh, for the night before, so that when he walked into the summit the next morning, he'd know what was going to happen. He'd be prepared to do his part. And when he came to Reagan in the morning, he said, did you read the briefing book? Reagan said, no, I never got to it. And James Baker was a little miffed. And he actually had enough courage to confront the president and say, well, why didn't you read what I gave you? And Reagan, in typical style, said, well, he said, the sound of music was on. <laughs> you got to love a man who hands his priorities straight. You know, it's not too late. It wasn't too late for the nation of Israel because there is a happy ending to Haggai. At the word of Haggai, the leaders in that nation rallied the people together and said, let's get back to work. And in a relatively short time, they finished that temple. And I don't think it's too late for us either, right? I don't know any of you individually enough to know where you stand in your walk. But I know enough about the body of Christ and about myself 
to know that we could all be doing more. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him for not just the direction of where to work, but the courage to make Him our priority. Dear Heavenly Father, I praise You for Your Word today and I praise You for the conviction it may bring by the power of the Holy Spirit in each of us. For Father, none of us, not I, not anyone in this room, could stand before You now and say with all honesty that as we have made decisions and priorities in our life, we have always put You first. But Father, You tell us to forgetting, forget what has gone before and look forward, Father. And in that, Father, I trust that You have still a plan for us, that we are here for a reason, and that plan, Father, is a plan that still gives us opportunity to serve You for however many days You have before us. And perhaps, Father, this was the day that the message You bring would prompt a different walk. One, Father, that perhaps is more obedient, perhaps is just more urgent. But in any sense, Father, I hope it is more pleasing. One, Father, that will reflect You in this world with a greater sense of purpose, knowing that we need homes and we need clothes and we need food and You have promised to provide those things. But not making those things our world, Father, but rather to live according to Your will. Give us the strength and the courage to do that as we leave this morning, Father. Give us a heart to ponder these things, to ask the hard questions in our own life about where we spend our time, perhaps where we spend our money, but just where we place our heart, Father. For where our treasure is, there our heart is also. And I pray our heart, Father, would be to be in Your will in all ways. Thank You as well, Father, for the chance to congregate this morning with a group of people, Father, that believe in You and care to know You more and to serve You in greater ways. Thank You for that blessing. May we go out from this morning, Father, renewed. And if it be Your will, may we gather here again in the weeks to come. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.